Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Today's Bible reading is 1 Samuel um, chapter 1. There was a certain man from Ramathium, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Alkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came from Alkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Alkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In a deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord. Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then made their way back to their home at Ramah. Alkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. 
When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what you seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed the son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked for him. So now I grant him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Father, we do thank you that your word is living and it does speak to us. It is still relevant even thousands of years later. I pray that as we discover, uh, as we hear you speak to us this morning, we'll discover more about who you are, your character, your goodness, your love for us, and so that we can live accordingly, live in response to that. We pray that now in your son's name. Amen. Uh, I want to introduce you to a guy that I came across uh, online in the news. This guy, Shoji Morimoto, that's his name. I don't know if I pronounce that properly. He's Japanese. He gets paid to do nothing. His name is the Do Nothing Guy. It's a rental service where he lends himself out to others. Now, this has gone viral. It's on the, all the, it was on the, all the news sites last year, and I was really fascinated by it. So I watched it. I, I, got, I read a lot about him. Uh, basically, he goes out and, and just does nothing. He goes out with people and just does nothing. He, many people just want him to come and accompany them to certain places so they don't feel alone. They find places they find difficult to go to alone. And so he goes, he gets hired. He'll go to places like uh, a cafe. If they want to try a new cafe, you got no one to go with, you call up Shoji and you say, hey, Shoji, I need someone to hang out with me. Will you come with me? He won't talk unless he's talked to. And he'll give only simple replies depending on the question itself. Simple answers to simple questions, that's what he says. Uh, he, so he won't start conversations. Uh, there was one person as well who hired him out because uh, they watched you know, a lot of um, dramas, you know, Japanese dramas, Korean dramas, where, where people leave on the train. And as you leave on the train, you have someone saying farewell to you outside the window. So that was his job. He got hired and he was at the train station. He was just waving, like smiling to someone who was leaving on the train because that person wanted to feel appreciated. They wanted to feel missed. They wanted that experience of what they saw on TV. If you want a session with him, if you want to book him for an appointment, it costs about a hundred Aussie dollars. That's how much it like, it's per booking, right? Now, that, that's, that's a great job, isn't it? <laughs> to do nothing. I mean, if you guys ever want to pay me um, to say farewell, I can always do that at the train station. Let me know. We'll book it in. But he gets a lot, he gets a lot of bookings. That's his full-time job now. And I find that really fascinating. He hires himself out as a person who'll do nothing with you. And so it, it's sort of clear, isn't it, that there's a, a need to be met here. And when someone needs help to go to a new cafe or, and they don't want to go by themselves, when someone needs to deal with the struggle of, of loneliness and they want company, when someone needs help uh, to feel appreciated and missed, we, we get that, don't we? I think in our world, especially, I imagine a city like Tokyo, where it's so big, there's so many people, you'd feel lonely even, even more so than, than somewhere like Brisbane. But we get that, don't we? That feeling of helplessness 
and loneliness. If you ever do, you, you know, it, it, it's, 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 and it's, well, it's fascinating to me. You call this guy up and, and you ask him to spend time with you, but it's not really the same as just a friend, is it? I, I find it quite inauthentic because when he leaves, well, he's not your friend anymore. He's not there anymore. You, you paid him money and the whole experience was sort of fake. And it makes me wonder then, like, if, if we're living in a world where we have to hire people to spend time with us because we're lonely, where, where is true help really found? Because they're getting something out of it. You know, where, where, where do we find help in those moments of helplessness? When we look at 1 Samuel, especially this first chapter, we discover there is a God here who shows us what true help looks like. He shows us that He is our great helper. Now, I want to get into 1 Samuel, but I want to give a bit of background too, because to understand what's going on, we have to understand the bigger context, the historical context of what's going on here in this book in the Old Testament. You'll, you'll need your Bibles open today, okay? Because I'm going to go through 1 Samuel, uh, and I'll look at chapter 2, a little bit of chapter 2 as well. Um, but in the historical timeline, um, Samuel picks up where the book of Judges left off. So the book of Judges is in your Bible as well. It's uh, Israel's history. And in the book of Judges, they lived. it was a time where judges ruled. So judges were just military leaders, you could say. Right? This is happening around 1000 BC. So 1000, uh, yeah, 1000 BC. That's right. 1000 years before Jesus. So 3000 years before our time. You could say. This is in history. 3000 years before our time. Uh, let's see where it picked off. Judges 21. I've got it on the screen. Judges 21, 25 says this. In those days... Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Okay, so at the end of Judges, they had no king. There was no king over Israel. They, had, they, they hadn't had a king up to this point until 1000 BC, around that time. Now, that's telling, something, that's telling us something very important, this sentence here. There was a time where uh, Israel um, lived in a time where there was no law. There was no one ruling over them. There was no, 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 no binding ruler to, 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 um, to create order in society. There's a lot of dysfunction, a lot of chaos amongst the people. And that's, that should, well, that should ring alarm bells for us. Israel were God's chosen people. And God's chosen people looked like they were a mess. This one line tells us a lot about the people. They had distanced themselves from God as their king. And so we hear, we're here in 1 Samuel and it's picking up what happens after Judges in their search for a king. Yeah. Hence our title, Enthroned. We're going to be thinking about how uh, Israel searches for a king to lead them. Let's get into chapter 1. Uh, you think as we start this book then, looking for a king, uh, the king of Israel, uh, it wouldn't begin with a helpless, barren woman like Hannah. But that's how it begins. Verse 1 tells us about a man called Elkanah, who was from Ramah. Verse 2, he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now, I'm not a woman, hopefully that's clear, but I've heard that there is a particular grief that women feel when they want kids. I, I've, heard, I've heard it, and, and I can imagine it would be really hard. A, a woman who wants to have kids and can't have kids, there's a particular grief there. And Hannah, you can imagine Hannah would be feeling that. But let's also consider the gravity of what's going on. Hannah was married and had no children. Right? That's what we're told. They're living in an ancient culture where for women in society, particularly married women, your worth was dependent on producing offspring. Society would have placed great shame upon her for her barrenness, or at least gave her looks of pity, which would have led to feelings of worthlessness if, if, if she didn't feel that already. Any reader, 
right? Reading this, would have sensed her. The original readers would have sensed her as soon as you heard, Hannah had no children. But while that was society's view upon women, we're told that grief is exacerbated, isn't it, by the other wife. We're told in verse 6, Penina, her rival, gives her a hard time too about it. She provokes Hannah to the point of tears. I can imagine it. She's probably using a mocking tone, sarcastic, you know, cruelty. What are you even good for, Hannah? I mean, you had one job. You need to start carrying your weight around here. You're such a disappointment. Uh, those w- words are triggering, aren't they? And it's, uh, I imagine that would affect someone like Hannah who can't even control her infertility. On top of that, on top of the other wife, you've got a husband who's trying to help. But listen to his words, verse 8. Her husband, Elkanah, 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 would would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Like, I'm sure (laughs) the, the people who are chuckling know where I'm going with this. I'm sure he loves her, but his words just sound a bit insensitive, right? Why are you, why are you being like this? Aren't I enough for you? Oh, like some men I know, instead of trying to empathize, he's made it about himself. I know I've done this before. Men often, maybe women too, but often men, speaking at, you know, as, a man, as a man myself, we do that at times. We often don't like sitting with the emotion. We don't like sitting with the tears. So we try to be the hero. We, we try to provide a solution. But it's actually more unhelpful, isn't it? Because it's not about you. <laughs> Friends, we need to learn to empathize. We need to sit with that discomfort, even if it's un- like uncomfortable, not for your sake, but the, for the sake of the other person here. But let's look at Elkanah, all right? Maybe, maybe he's just trying his best. Let's not give him a hard time. He's just coming across a little insensitive as we read this. But that's not all. You've got the priest as well in the story, Eli. We, we hear that they go up to the city of Shiloh to worship. The city of Shiloh was the city before Jerusalem where people would go to worship. It was the center of worship before Jerusalem. Uh, the Ark of God, that's where it was located. So people would go up there, make sacrifices once a year, have a festival. Right? So they're going to Shiloh and we've got Eli the priest there. He sees her crying and praying. And this is what he says in verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Man, poor Hannah. She's having a hard time. It's, it's tragic, isn't it? The people around her don't quite understand her. Her grief, her helplessness. And surely that's relatable for some of us here. That sense of helplessness. You know, grieving the loss of loved ones. Struggling with our mental health. Moments where we feel lost or betrayed or abandoned, feeling alone. No one understands how, how I feel. Her feelings of anguish and grief isn't unfamiliar to many of us, is it? But as unkind, as, as insensitive as some of these people around her are, it's not that that leads her to her despair, to the brink of despair. It's what we read in verse 5 and 6. We read it twice. The Lord closed Hannah's womb. He kept Hannah from conceiving. That's heartbreaking. What's most heartbreaking is she knows deep down God is sovereign. He controls everything and he's the reason behind her infertility. Now what would you do if you were Hannah? What would you expect of her? Wouldn't the natural response for many of us be to, to abandon God at this point? 
We've been struggling for so long, suffering in silence. No one understands how you feel. No one gets you. God even feels so distant, even irrelevant to your situation. And you begin hearing yourself saying, you begin, you begin doubting God, whether God exists. And if He exists, is He even good? Because I've been suffering for so long. Surely you've had that thought cross your mind at some point in life. I'm sure it does for many of us in our suffering. Is, is this whole God thing, this whole Christian thing, even worth it? Life is so hard. I've made so many sacrifices. Why do I even bother? I get that. I've witnessed so many friends leave God and the church because they couldn't reconcile God with their suffering. Yet this woman, Hannah, she gives us a picture of what resilience and persevering faith looks like. She's hit rock bottom. After years of feeling deserted and shunned by the people around her, she doesn't run away from it. She doesn't hide. No, we read she cries out. From the depths of her soul, she prays all the more to the one, the only one who can act and do something. To the only one who will hear her and is powerful enough to act. She cries out to God. Verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prays to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Lord Almighty, Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. She's addressing God with a, with a title that evokes power. And she's asking him to flex his power. She's really intentional with her language here. At her weakest moment in her suffering and anguish and bitterness, with how, how, how crap life is going for her, she still in faith turns to God and calls Him Lord Almighty. She can only do this because she knows who this God is that she prays to. She knows His character. She knows His power. She knows He is good and gracious. A God of the covenant, a covenant love. He fulfills His promises. Do we know God like she does? Do we know his character like Hannah does? Like she, she, she asks that this God who has closed her womb will remember her. That if he is to give her a son, she will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. She prays that the Lord will, will help her. But it's not just for her good, is it? It's also for his glory. He will, he will, she will give him over. Her prayer isn't one that's just self-serving but rather a prayer that asks of God to do a work that will honor and glorify His own name. Now think about it. The context, Israel, they were known as God's people, but they look like they're a mess. They're so dysfunctional, so disorganized. They can't get their act together. It makes God look bad. Now she's praying for her son, and of course that will be a joy to her to have a son, but this son ultimately is going to be an instrument, Samuel the one that's going to lead God's people, the son, the son that will bring glory to God. And so in her faithfulness and her perseverance, in her hope, we're told, verse 19, the Lord remembered her and she conceived. The Lord remembered her. Let, let's, let's be clear, Lord, God had not forgotten her. He's not like, like silly old me, I didn't RSVP for lunch today, I forgot. No, it's a word used often in the Bible with God that describes how he'll fulfill his promises. He remembers, he fulfills his promises to her and his people. It's, it's what we call covenant language, right? Promise language, where God is acting in accordance with his purposes and his character. He remembers his people when they cry out to him. 
He hears their prayers and he'll answer and act for their good and for his glory. So she becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son. Verse 20, she named him Samuel and saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Right? So the name Samuel sounds like ask, to ask. Right? So next time you see Sam, just say, hey, ask. Hey, uh, uh, uh. hey ask. That sounds weird. Hey, ask. Uh, now that's what happened. Like, but step back, right? That's what happened. Step back for a second. See the bigger picture of what's happening here. Hannah can see it. Has a, has a son called Samuel. We have to ask ourselves why the story is even here. Why do we care about a random woman called Hannah and her struggles with infertility? Well, let's remember the context, a period of history where Israel had no king. The age of the judges had passed. There was no leader over Israel. Israel as a nation needs help. They've turned away from God, and God has left them to fend for themselves. In the next couple of chapters, you'll see again and again their helplessness, the helplessness uh, where with, with armies invading them and, and led by corrupt leaders, corrupt priests. And we have Hannah here in chapter 1 as a, as a beacon of hope, a, li- a, a little light of hope. It's not just a story about Hannah. You see, this story is here. Chapter 1 is here because it's a story about God. We see the God who remembers, the great helper who doesn't, who doesn't just lead them in their helplessness. He acts through a prayer through this barren, helpless, weak, downtrodden woman and brings about salvation, not just for her, but for his people. You see, the birth of Samuel. Samuel is an answer to both Hannah's tears and Israel's need. And we can see this because chapter 1, it needs to be read in light of chapter 2. And I'm going to read that a little bit for you now. So you, have, you need your Bibles open. She sings in praise. And she praises, not, it's not praise to herself, praising her son. She praises the, the true hero of the story, God. Let's read it from verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. I'm going to stop there. We see a whole different Hannah here, don't we? She's, she's joyful. Her life has been changed. She sings with this praise and wonder. A woman who was once downcast, whose heart was filled with bitterness and grief and anguish, she now has a heart that sings and rejoices in God. It's like this renewed strength. This God who has powerfully brought her deliverance and salvation from her troubles. She rejoices in Him. But let's keep reading from verse 6. I'll pick it up from there. Chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Wow. Let those words soak in. He's holy. There's no other like him. Powerful and mighty. Multiple times in this song from Hannah, she expresses what this God is capable of doing. Look at all those verbs. He brings death. He makes alive. He humbles. He exalts. He sends poverty. He sends wealth. He will thunder from heaven and judge the world. There is no greater God than He, no God more powerful than Him. The Lord Almighty. And it's in this great God we can find help. He's the God of reversals. He will humble the strong, lift up the weak, turn the, the tables to show that He's the one who is truly in control and sovereign. 
working all things out for our good and for his glory. There's this, this song here that Hannah sings is a powerful testament to the majesty and goodness of our God. And while she could be singing about how great it is to have Samuel, I think many of us would want to celebrate that. She's showing us that the praise doesn't go to the gift, but goes to the giver. The God who has infinite power and majesty, who's committed to our infinite good. Isn't that where our praise should be directed? To the one who saves? Uh, too often we're, we're stuck, aren't we? Focused on ourselves and the salvation we've received rather than the Savior, aren't we? All right, for, for example, imagine, imagine if you were drowning at the beach and you, you, know, you, you got rescued by a lifeguard. They swim you back to shore. You're back on shore now and you're so thankful for life. I'm so thankful for sand. You start kissing the sand. I'm so thankful for fresh air to breathe. I'm so thankful for life. But you don't give any praise or thanks to that lifeguard who just risked their life for you. Imagine that. Isn't that often the misdirected praise we give to our salvation instead of to the Savior? When Hannah sings the song, she directs it to the one who is worthy of all praise. The Lord Almighty, the Sovereign God. See, while Hannah's life is a snapshot of Israel's situation, we've learned that, it's really also a template for us too. When we approach God, do we see Him as our great helper? Do we see Him as the one who reached out to us when we were helpless and in need? Yeah, I know many of us still question that. How do we trust that He is good? Isn't it easier in our suffering to not turn to God? It's so much easier to skip church, to hide away from others, to run to our other devices hoping they'll save us. I, I know many of us feel without hope and without help throughout life. It's easier sometimes to call Shoji up and ask Shoji to come hang out with us, right? We don't want to be alone. It's rough. Suffering can feel at times endless. But like Hannah, will you persevere in faith because you know God, because you know his character? And will you take the time if you don't know his character? Because when you do, you'll discover his goodness and love for us in Jesus. Who himself grieved and suffered so that you and I wouldn't have to. Who saw us in our weakness. He saw how far we were from him. And he took the first step, many steps, all the steps in our helplessness to provide salvation to meet our greatest need. It's in the gospel of Jesus we see the clearest expression of how God is our great helper the great helper to the helpless. On the screen, I've got Romans 5.8. It says, God demonstrates his own love, love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still sinners, we couldn't save ourselves. Christ died for us. And Ephesians 2, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We can't make ourselves alive. He makes us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus died to help you and I out of our helplessness. That's the greatest act of salvation you and I will ever receive. We can trust. We can trust his, God, his good plans for us. When we gaze and when we fix our gaze upon the cross of Christ. Now, I don't want to downplay how hard it might be for you. There might be long days and seasons of suffering and grief and anguish. It might feel like God isn't listening. He isn't answering or responding the way you want him to. Yes, he may not give you what you ask for. But in Jesus, we have hope. He's the one we look to. God has shown us that he's worthy of our trust and love, that he will do what is ultimately good for us. 
as we've seen, his love for us at the cross of Christ. It's in this God that Hannah trusted in as well. Hannah, who lived 3,000 years before us. Hannah had hope. She trusted God. She knew that he had a plan for his people. So when she sings this song, chapter 2, she finishes with singing about God's king, the anointed one that will be exalted. It's crazy prophetic, right? Because there was, there was no king at the time. There was no king that reigned over Israel. She was looking forward into the future to God's Messiah that would come. Who was this king that she's talking about? Well, just like Samuel, who was born from a helpless woman, Hannah, in the midst of a helpless nation, God's king, our king, Jesus, was born from a helpless woman named Mary in the midst of a helpless world many, many years later. A world that had turned its back on God. Can you see Hannah's story? Can you see how it's fulfilled in Mary's story, the Mary, the mother of Jesus? Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, you can read about it in your own time. It records for us Mary's song. That sounds just very coincidentally similar to Hannah's. This is the beauty of God's big story in the Bible, friends. Hannah's story isn't random. It's not irrelevant for the Christian. She points us to the Savior who comes in weakness, but by God's power will be lifted up and exalted. This is the God who turns the world upside down. And if Hannah thought she had something to sing about because God had reversed her situation, how much more do we in Jesus? This God is the God of reversals and the God who in love and grace will not leave us in our suffering and helplessness. He sends one, his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross, lifts him up from the grave so our sins can be forgiven. The God, the God of Hannah's womb is the God of Jesus' tomb. Right? I wanted to say that because it rhymed. The God of Hannah's womb is the God of Jesus' tomb. He rescues us and helps us in our greatest need. We have an assurance and hope even in the depth of our misery and sorrow. Hannah's story points us to it. That God has a great plan of redemption. That he will provide salvation. There will be a day when all things will be made right. So when life hits you hard and suffering feels endless, we can hold on to the words of Romans 8, 8.28. Put it on the screen. It says this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. None of our suffering is ever wasted under his sovereign grace and providential plans. You know, we, we, at, we've named our church providence. It means that God governs all things. That's what providence means. It doesn't mean provide. It means he governs all things. He's sovereign. And each day unfolds, it, it unfolds according to his will, under his infinite power and care. And all things are being directed towards our good and his glory. We live trusting that. Providence Church lives. We exist celebrating that, that God. Eight years. We're celebrating eight years because of our God. The God of Providence. Let's not forget that. We're helpless without God. And I, I, I know the people in this room. I know many of you here. I know as many of us are, are self-made, go-getters, problem solvers and fixers. We all need that posture of humility. We all need to come to the realization we can't save ourselves. We do need God's help. It might frustrate you that you can't fix it on your own. And we live in a world that values strength and, and people that are self-made, but God goes against the grain of culture. This is the very means by which Jesus saves us. It's through weakness, his humiliating death, that salvation is accomplished, that strength is found. Paul talks about, uh, I've got a couple more verses I want to show on the screen. 1 Corinthians verse 27, he says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God ch chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, so that no one may boast before him. You see, for the Christian, we need to remember this. To know salvation begins with knowing 
our need for help. Knowing without God we are weak. The whole definition of strength through pride and wealth and status, that's just an illusion of power. Every Christian should be marked by weakness. We can't save ourselves. We need His grace. We need to understand the gravity of His power. He alone is the strength of our salvation. Paul says it again, 2 Corinthians 12. He says, For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I can boast all, more, all the more in my weaknesses so Christ can be displayed through me. And so we have Hannah's story, a story about weakness and helplessness. And who do we hear? who's the hero of the story? God alone, the strength of our salvation. But lastly, as this hits your heart, let's, as, as, you, as you consider that you've received salvation from our great helper God, will that trust and faith and joy overflow in praise as well? Because of Christ, we have every reason to praise God the King. We have every reason to sing. Uh, in the words of John Piper, right, he's a pastor from the U.S., um, he says, when we truly understand the depths of God's goodness in the gospel, the salvation we have in him, when we truly understand that, when they are known truly and felt duly, they demand more than discussion and analysis and description. They demand poetry and song and music. Isn't that true? Like, like in every good Disney movie that breaks out in song, it's because their feelings are erupting. It's overflowing into song. It's expressed through that. And that's what we sing with Hannah. She sings out of that joy in God. I, I hope, like Hannah, we too can sing with that joy in the God who has delivered us in Christ. And I've said this before, our theology leads to doxology, right? That just means that the knowledge of God, the study of God, the theology, it leads to the worship of God. That's doxology. And what we truly know of God in our heads should overflow to our hearts and our hands that worship and praise Him. And friends, I've witnessed over the years so many men and women who might not be the greatest singers, who never sang in their life, but at church with tears in their eyes, singing because they have experienced and known the grace and love and salvation that they have in Jesus. Friends, right theology leads to right doxology. And we'll be able to sing of this great God soon. I can't wait. Let's never take that for granted that we get to sing to this God because we know the great deliverance we have in Him. But before, before we get to singing, let me finish. God is the one who is our great helper. And He has saved us in our great helplessness. Is that something you truly believe? And if it is, and if you do, will you also point others around you to this God? Who might, the others around you might be suffering, feeling helpless, feeling the anguish and pain. Will you also point them to this great helper that they have in our God Almighty, who is for us, with us, and has our good in mind. Let's pray to him now. God Almighty, help us to see you for who you truly are. A God who is good, who is trustworthy, who we can turn to for our every need and in times of help. We are undeserving and ungrateful creatures. We have distanced ourselves from you and your goodness. Lord, help us. Help us to see that clearly, that we are in need of your help. Help us to see your grace and love for us, that you bring us salvation and meet us in our helplessness. Help us live in light of that truth to trust you, knowing that everything has been planned out for our good and your glory, as we witness ultimately at the cross of Christ. 
Lord, we pray for this. We pray humbly before you. We pray for this in his precious name. And together, all of God's people said, Amen.